This is Dr. Dan McQuillan, the president of the Infectious Disease Society of America, and welcoming you to the latest edition of Let's Talk ID. And today we're going to focus on uh, misinformation as it applies to the COVID pandemic. The United States has made important strides in the fight against COVID-19 in recent weeks with the authorization of COVID vaccines for children ages 5 to 11 and boosters for all adults. But despite this progress, still less than 60% of the eligible population has been fully vaccinated against COVID. Fueling this COVID vaccine hesitancy has been a tide of misinformation about the virus, vaccines, treatments, and the government's role in all of this, among other things. IDSA has been working on many fronts to combat misinformation throughout our media outreach, social media platforms, and our COVID-19 real-time learning network, but much more remains to be done, of course. Today, I'm pleased to have with us two leaders in the fight against COVID who will share their thoughts on this important topic. First, John Bridgeland, the co-founder and CEO of the COVID Collaborative, of which IDSA is a member, and our own IDSA president-elect, Dr. Carlos Del Rio. So welcome, gentlemen. First, I'm gonna ask John Bridgeland a couple of questions. Bridge, can you tell us a little bit about the COVID Collaborative and what it has been doing to address misinformation about COVID vaccines and treatments? Sure. So thank you, Dan, and thanks to IDSA for uh, being such a, a compelling partner of the COVID Collaborative and grounding our efforts in science and evidence. So when a pandemic meets our system of federalism with 55 states and inhabited territories 3,000 counties, 31,000 zip codes, you actually need an all-country response to inform the decisions of, what, 330 million Americans and their institutions, schools, workplaces, other places where Americans are gathering. And so a year and a half ago, at a time when there wasn't a national plan, we formed the COVID Collaborative to bring together top leaders, experts, and institutions like IDSA, like Carlos Del Rio, who's one of our favorite members in health, but also leaders in institutions representing uh, education, the economy, and the diversity of our country to support a whole country response. Because this isn't just a public health issue, we also have to look at it in terms of its effects on children in schools, our economy, our civil society, and our society and country as a whole. In terms of addressing gaps in misinformation and providing good science-based information, we actually began by listening to various populations to understand their level of knowledge, their view of things, who they trusted, who they didn't, uh, what information they were desperate for. And uh, with the Ed Council and the COVID Collaborative, we launched a $250 million vaccination education campaign informed by good research uh, to provide good information, facts, uh, answers to tough questions through credible, trusted messengers. Starting with the medical community, whose surveys showed are our most trusted messengers. And we also uh, partnered with others who represented significant reach throughout the country from businesses, schools, faith-based institutions, to sports leagues, country music, former presidents and first ladies, and even Pope Francis <laughs> to expand. Uh, our effort and reach. Um, we have a get the facts portion of our website that sophisticated people like you all and Carlos Del Rio and the CDC and others have informed that provides answers to questions and combats misinformation 
And finally, in the states with lower vaccination rates, we actually have a strong on-the-ground campaign to get good information through trusted messengers in the hands of parents, schools, businesses, faith-based groups, and others. And have worked with governors and mayors and other leaders on a bipartisan basis. That actually leads to my next question. Um, and that one very important aspect of the collaborative is that it's bipartisan. And that's really critical since COVID has unfortunately become so politicized uh, over the pandemic. How uh, has the collaborative worked across that political divide? Facts and good evidence should have a way of penetrating through the political divisions. They don't always, unfortunately. But in everything we've done, we've been adherent to science and evidence and also being truthful with the American people and her institutions about things we, we do not know yet to build trust and credibility. We also took a Noah's Ark approach every step of the way. Our co-chairs are a former Republican governor and senator from Idaho, very conservative state, and former Democratic governor uh, and presidential candidate for Massachusetts, uh, Deval Patrick with Dirk Kempthorne. When we saw masking become unnecessarily political in its manifestations, we uh, tapped Presidents uh, Bush, Obama, Clinton, and Carter, and the First Ladies to send a message of national unity around vaccinations. And we even got uh, helped get President Trump on Fox News to send a strong message to his base as an outgrowth of Operation Warp Speed that he should feel proud of. That uh, And he said, vaccines are a beautiful thing. You should, you should get vaccinated. <laughs> so we've really, we also have engaged former officials, all the U.S. Surgeon Generals, FDA commissioners, CDC directors, some dating back to the Reagan administration, engaged governors across the political aisle to embrace a common plan of action. Not everybody did, but many of them did. And then fr- finally, we've, we've got into the heart of the political divide. When some Republicans were nonchalant or even hostile to masking and vaccination, we brought in Republican Governor Chris Christie, who had attended a, the, what is now called a White House super spreader event, didn't wear a mask, got COVID, spent seven days in the ICU, lost two members of his family, and it, 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 he had a story to tell. And it brought a reality and credibility on the uh, right side of the aisle to this issue. So we deployed him all across the country through PSAs uh, to share his story and insights. And so we've tried to be uh, uh, politically mindful in deploying people and faith-based leaders and others who can reach large swaths of the population, conservatives, evangelicals, Republicans, others who are uh, maybe skeptical. We even, uh, interestingly, uh, have mobilized um, uh, leaders you've never heard of but who have tremendous credibility in local communities in 16 states across the country that have lower vaccination rates. And that's been done on a completely bipartisan basis. Yeah, I was going to ask what you thought the most effective strategies were to combat that across the country. And it seems to me that people on the ground and and leaders like that, that, that you wouldn't see on the nightly news, but that are active in their communities would be the best way to, to attack that. Yeah, and people like Carlos Del Rio gave us insights about this. It's doctor to patient. Mm-hmm. It's family member to family member. It's peer to peer. It's people who love and care about you or credible messengers and who have good backgrounds in science and information on their side. One of the most effective strategies, I think, has been actually the mobilization of entire sectors, an institutional approach. So 
when we saw from our parent survey that 80% of parents wanted schools to be more active as vaccination sites and providing good information because they've done that historically, as you know. We worked with the White House and our network of, uh, of school leaders across the country in urban and rural areas um, to promote schools as vaccination sites. We created COVID safe zones with businesses that were either requiring vaccination or regular testing. We reached out to the college sports leagues because millions of Americans are attending college football games every and professional football games every week and worked with them to get their leagues to set the example and their players and coaches to set the example and then set up pop-up vaccination clinics uh, near games. But leadership really matters from sectors and uh, we've drawn on that in a way that um, hopefully confronts and combats uh, misinformation and disinformation. Regarding your your collaborative vaccine education campaign that you did with the Ad Council, I know you've done a great deal of research to determine how best to address questions and concerns about those vaccines in different populations. Is there anything that you've learned that, that, that we should hear about? Yeah, just a good reminder. And again, Carlos reinforces from the very beginning, which how critical it is to actually listen to where people are in their COVID response journey. I'll give you an example. We, we learned very early on in our survey of black Americans that there was a lot of mistrust of the process of vaccine development, of government, uh, in part prompted by the historic trauma associated with the uh, public health services Tuskegee syphilis experiments conducted, I think, in the night from the 1930s to the early 1970s. So one strategy uh, we deployed with the Ed Council, we, we contacted the descendants of the men involved in the syphilis study at Tuskegee to send the message that unlike their relatives, uh, people deserve to get legitimate answers to their questions and to understand how the process for development of vaccines occurred and to hear from credible sources about their safety and efficacy to boost confidence in the COVID-19 vaccines. And we know that had an impact. Another one was this example I touched on, which 80% of parents indicated they really wanted schools as vaccination sites. And they felt like schools had the interest of their children in mind. So we, we mobilized the Council of the Great City Schools, which represents 77 urban school districts, superintendents association, 14,000 superintendents across the United States, and the Rural Schools Collaborative uh, and the White House to create schools as vaccination sites with information campaigns and clinics on site or nearby, even student-led campaigns like Teens for Vaccines, which, you know, these peer-to-peer -peer efforts uh, have an impact. America's had such a long tradition of childhood vaccination in schools that why not build on, on that? And finally, I just have to note, COVID has devastated the American Indian Alaska Native populations and they never get talked about like they should. And the, we surveyed them, partnered with the National Congress of American Indians. They have a high distrust of government grounded in historic, very difficult history with the government and a belief that vaccines make you sick. But the good news is that the, the American Indian community mobilized native speakers, relied on local healthcare workers, and had these innovative partnerships that were so effective. For example, the Lumai uh, Nation in Washington had such an effective campaign that the state and schools and local communities nearby that were not American Indian adopted them. And I'll note that uh, the Navajo Nation, which was probably the most devastated place in the country on COVID, 
now has one of the highest vaccination rates in the country. So we have a lot to learn from one another. What can professional societies like IDSA do to help the COVID Collaborative address these issues and misinformation? Well, you guys are awesome. You're already doing so much. And I, it's been thrilling to uh, to work with you so closely because you have so much credibility on the issue when you marshal science and evidence and uh, medical professionals all across the country through your networks. Uh, people want clear facts. They want evidence. They want honesty about what we know and don't know. It all builds trust. And I think uh, you're helping to combat misinformation by mobilizing your networks where we still have great challenges with webinars, events, podcasts that uh, get good information into the hands of more people. Uh, and as you were doing, you know, shoring up, I think this is really important. Carlos is, and I and George's Benjamin and many of us have talked about how public health authorities are being undermined in this country. And your work in shoring up the decisions of the CDC and the FDA, such as boosters for all American adults, as you mentioned at the outset of this program, every little bit of that matters in this war against this pandemic and uh, with uh, uh, Omicron uh, coming around the corner, uh, it's gonna be more important to have clear guidance from all levels of government, uh, public and private sector alike. Thanks, Bridge. That's a really short but incredibly impactful body of work you've put together with your collaborative that, that's been incredibly important in the whole process. Carlos, what are the, some of the most common myths you've been hearing from patients about COVID vaccines and treatments? Well, you know, Dan, what you find nowadays is that I, I see a lot of people where it's not really lack of information anymore, but it's really excessive misinformation that is making them not get vaccinated. And the most common things you hear are things like they were they were rushed, you know, they they weren't tested for safety, uh, they change your DNA, uh, they can give you COVID, you know, they have severe side effects, they can make you infertile, and those things keep on coming up repeatedly and repeatedly. So I think what's really important is to listen what somebody has heard and then to try to demonstrate to them that that is misinformation. And sometimes it's very hard because, you know, they have this very, this very firm belief. They heard it from somebody they trust. And even though it's misinformation, it came from somebody they trust. And therefore, you have the, the, the difficulty of trying to convince them that the information you're giving them is actually correct, but also that you, the person that they trusted is somebody that is giving them misinformation. So it really becomes a challenge because you really have to do this, this very complicated dance of, let me tell you the truth without necessarily discrediting the other person, simply saying the other person is also misinformed. And you know, the other person may not be somebody uh, mischievous that is doing this, maybe somebody that also got misinformation from somewhere. So in, in approaching a patient like that, that's vaccine hesitant, what's been the successful routes for you to get them to receive a vaccine and what's been most frustrating for you in the process? You know, I think the most successful is to, is to find, find where they are and try to move them forward and try to find what is the reasons for them to get vaccinated. At, at our hospital here at Grady, uh, we have put something at, at the entrance of the hospital that is called the, the no judgment zone. So you can go there and nobody's gonna judge you. If you haven't been vaccinated, people are gonna listen to you and they're gonna try to answer your questions. So you need to not, be judging people for not being vaccinated. I think we, you know, honestly made a mistake when we started saying, well, this is an epidemic of the unvaccinated, because, you know, to be frank, it's always been an epidemic of the unvaccinated. Before we had vaccines, it was only the unvaccinated that got COVID, right? So 
I mean, we didn't really say much, but but by targeting people, by really stigmatizing people, you're not doing anybody a favor. So I think we need to understand why are people unvaccinated. I think during the COVID uh, last COVID surge in Delta, it was useful to have somebody who's in the hospital who realizes how severe COVID is talk to their family and say, okay, it's time that you get vaccinated. And finally, a lot of people will do it for their families. Uh, I have this case that I really liked in which a lady found me in the market, a lady in her 60s who has chronic lung disease. And she asked me to talk to her kids who are in their 30s because she says, I want to be protected. I'm very concerned about my health. And their kids, her kids did not want to get vaccinated because they had heard about, you know, infertility and affecting their, their, their gonads. And when I spoke to them and I said to them, do it for your mom, they found a reason to do it. So you need to find somebody, a reason why it's worth taking that sacrifice. It could be here for yourself or it could be for somebody you, 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 you love. But I think the most important thing is that we need to continue a really emphasizing that these vaccines were developed safely. They were developed following all the procedures. And at the end of the day, that we have an incredible system in place to monitor side effects. I mean, the way that we've been able to pick up myocarditis and, and thrombosis, the thrombotic thrombocytopenic syndrome and other rare conditions is because we have this fantastic surveillance system, you know, verse that allows us to pick up those really, really rare events that you couldn't pick up in the clinical trial because they don't, they don't occur in thousands of people. They occur after millions of doses have been administered. So how can we all become better discerners of truthful information regarding COVID? You know, I think we need to be able to, to talk uh, simply to talk, not, not scientifically, but to talk to people. I, I remind myself frequently of the movie Philadelphia when Denzel Washington said, says, explain it to me as if I was a five-year-old. You need to, to learn how to take data and how to take concepts and explain them to people in a very simple way, in ways they can understand it. And I, I like to use a lot of, uh, of similarities, a lot of anecdotes, a lot of ways to to, to bring it home in ways that is simple for people to understand, you know, to make it, for example, I frequently tell people when they say to me, well, you know, things are safe now, uh, we, should, we, we should be able to no longer wear a mask. I say, well, you know, that's almost like saying, you know, there haven't been any accidents in the freeway, so why, why, why are we using a seatbelt anymore since we don't need it? So I think you need, to, you need to make it in ways that people understand. You need to have similarities. You need to have a ways to, to make relations in which people understand, you know, sports analogies, all sorts of different things that, that the person is going to find that you make a connection with them. And, and at the same time, I think it's really important to get trusted members of the community to give the message. I've had throughout the pandemic the opportunity to work closely with, with Tyler Perry. And when the vaccines appeared in January, I said, Tyler, you know, we got to get you vaccinated and we got to do it in public so people see it. And he said to me, you know, how do you know I, I want to be vaccinated? I have a lot of questions. And so I was assuming he was okay with the vaccine. And I said, fine, let me go. We'll answer your questions. And then after I answer your questions, we'll go ahead and see if you want to get vaccinated. But let's go ahead and, and film you, you know, asking questions. And I think you could be wealthy. You can be, you know, very important and you can still have questions. So we also need to let people know that we, we, we should not assume that everybody is, you know, dying to get vaccinated. And we need to understand why, what are the reasons? Yeah, I think that's an incredibly powerful technique. It's certainly time consuming, but it's definitely worth it um, in, the, in all the individual cases. Um, something that's somewhat of a parallel of this is that we're beginning to see a decline in rates of vaccination for other childhood diseases, mainly 
do you think we're entering a new era in medicine because of the effects of misinformation or? You know, I'm very concerned that that the anti-vax movement, uh, you know, that started some years ago is beginning to use this to actually push other initiatives. So we're seeing some legislators in many states saying, well, we know we shouldn't have vaccine mandates for children and we shouldn't have this and we shouldn't have that. I'm very concerned about that. Vaccines have saved, you know, millions of lives. Uh, you know, kids today don't have to worry about diseases like polio and they don't have to worry about many other diseases because we've been able to take care of them through vaccines. So the the, the magic of vaccines, the incredible thing that vaccines have done to me is, is something that we should not uh, let people forget. And I think we as an infectious disease specialist have a very important role in reminding people the importance of, of immunizations. It's just not, it goes beyond COVID and talking about vaccination, not only for children, but actually for adults. I mean, there are many, many vaccines that adults should be receiving than they're not. So, so talking vaccines should be one thing that we as an infectious disease doctors do regularly with our families, with our friends, with our patients. This is something you know a lot about, I know. Uh, how can physicians and other healthcare professionals best use social media to combat misinformation? You know, I think social media is incredibly powerful and I think social media has had, has the yin and the yang. There's a lot of misinformation in social media, but there's a lot of credible information in social media and you can do it by amplifying uh, credible information, by letting other people hear credible information, by, you know, by retweeting what your network is hearing in credible information, by being careful uh, in, in, in blocking and, and, and counter, uh, you know, counteracting misinformation. But more importantly is to really make yourself uh, savvy on social media. So when your patients or your relatives or a friend sends you a tweet or something posted on Facebook said, hey, what do you think about this? You need to be able to tell them why that is a misinformation and what kinds of things they need to do to prevent misinformation from entering their, their system and their, their network. Yeah, I agree. It's a very powerful uh, medium to use, but you really have to be careful about how you use it and, and when. Carlos and I would like to um, bridge from this to a uh, discussion of the newest variant that will likely be hitting our shores soon, Omicron. And uh, just to summarize what's happened to date, in early November uh, in South Africa near Johannesburg, an increase in cases of, of COVID were noted. And at that point in South Africa, the rate of cases was quite low. And so this was picked up on quickly. And the initial cluster found of the new variant, which is now called Omicron, was found among university students who had been on a bus trip together to the Western Cape. And samples that were taken between November 12th and 16th were found to have what's called an S-gene target failure, SGTF. And that's a lab finding in TACMAN PCR testing where the S-gene is not amplified. This had actually been seen in the past in the alpha variant. And this finding led them to do whole genome sequencing of the samples and identify a novel variant B11529, which was now uh, uh, named Omicron. And as of November 28, uh, and actually yesterday, uh, I believe we're up to 19 countries where this has been found. And there are reports of cases uh, of COVID with SGTF in Germany and the Netherlands. That's probably likely going to be Omicron as well. The interesting thing about this variant of concern is that it's got a very unusual constellation of mutations with 45 to 52 amino acid changes and multiple mutations in the receptor binding domain and the nucleocapsid that are known to be associated with resistance to neutralizing antibodies. 
the R203K and G204R mutation in the nucleocapsid is also seen in alpha, gamma, and lambda variants, and it, that is associated with increased transmissibility. Uh, and in the US, 99.9% of the variants right now that are circulating are Delta. Thus far, we haven't seen any cases of Omicron as far as I know, but it's likely only a matter of time. Where do you think we're gonna be going from there, Carlos? Well, you know, I think one thing to remind people is that viruses, RNA viruses like this one, respiratory viruses tend to mutate frequently. Now compared to other viruses, for example, influenza, this virus mutates not as much. Uh, this, this specific variant is particularly noticeable because it accumulated a lot of mutations. And there's, there's preliminary evidence that suggests that probably this virus infected a severely immunocompromised individual, maybe somebody with advanced HIV, not in treatment. And that person stayed positive for a long period of time. And during that time, you know, the sort of the immune system of the individual plus the, the replication of the individual led to the accumulation of multiple mutations. As you say, this is an unusually high number of mutations. Uh, that have been associated with problems. And, you know, we always worry about variants when they do three things. They increase transmissibility, they increase severity of disease, or they have an ability to, to evade the immune system, either vaccinations, prior infection, or monoclonal antibodies. Thus far, we don't have answers to those questions. And I think this is something that is very important. A lot of the speculation being made is based on, well, based on these mutations, we think this may be the case. But this variant has so many mutations that at the end of the day, it may actually be that the, the virus is less fit rather than more fit because it has mm -hmm. simply too many mutations. And so I think time will tell. And I think what's really hard is to tell people, you know, calm down, let science do what it's supposed to do. It's gonna take some time, but we need to get the answers. At this point in time, what do you need to do? You need to do exactly the same thing you've been doing. Number one, get vaccinated if you haven't. Number two, if you've been vaccinated, get your booster. CDC has pretty much approved boosters for anybody over the age of, of 18. And number three, continue doing the things we've been doing all along, right? Wearing your mask when you're in public places with multiple individuals, washing your hands, keeping social distance. I mean, at the end of the day, we know what to how to prevent infection with this virus, and it's not going to be any different. So I think one thing we need to tell people is, is Omicron is just a reminder that this pandemic is not over. And I think it's also very important that we emphasize that this virus are going to continue to emerge as long as we don't control the global pandemic. So the need to immunize globally becomes even more important. So if I, if, we, if we can get anything out of this is the important need that we immunize the world and we really take a leadership role in ending this pandemic globally and not, we're not gonna end this pandemic by just boosting every American. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I think it also points out that an important part of a layered approach to prevention is, is testing. And I think one of the things that, that we really need to ramp up in this country is rapid testing uh, to particularly look at people that may be going to an enclosed event uh, to, to pick these things up. As far as I know so far, this variant is not something that's gonna escape the uh, testing that we have at this point. Um, and as you say, we don't really know about monoclonal antibodies and, and some of the other things, but it seems that vaccines are still gonna have reasonably good protection. You know, I personally am a big believer that testing for surveillance and testing for uh, it should be done much more than what we're doing. I think, you know, it's unfortunate that rapid tests are so expensive in our country and other places are much cheaper. But the reality is that if you can, you're going to have an event with, you know, I was just advising somebody today that is having an event with 12 people coming from different parts of the country. And I said, well, you know, 
as you get your guests that are coming for this board meeting, the new uh, you know greeting basket at the hotel room, <laughs> it's actually a, a couple of rapid tests. You put them there so they, they get tested before they actually go to your meeting, right? This is instead of putting a soap and chocolate and other things we did before, <laughs> Now you put a couple of rapid tests and you, you know, you put a hand sanitizer and this is a way to, to tell people we want to be COVID safe and we want to be, uh, you know, not infected. I think one thing that also is, is being really hard for people to understand is initially we had a lot of enthusiasm that this vaccines prevented infection. They were never designed to prevent infection and they're not really good at preventing infection, but they're still very good at preventing severe disease and death, which is what they were designed to do. So we need to remind ourselves that Vaccines may not prevent you from getting infected, but they're going to prevent you from getting very ill. I had a uh, a colleague of mine who, you know, is in his 60s, call me yesterday saying, you know, I started having sneezing and a little bit of chest, head, head cold, and I didn't know what was going on. And then wham, I lost my sense of smell, and I knew exactly what it was. But he's somebody vaccinated, and, you know, he tested himself with a rapid test. He's positive. Eight days later, he's doing fine. He never had any problems, and that's because he's been vaccinated. So he didn't prevent infection. But he prevented having the consequences of severe disease, which at the end of the day is why we vaccinate people for the flu. So I want to remind people, you know, not only think about COVID, we're in, we're in December right now. It's time to think about the flu and get your flu shot and get your patients get the flu shot. Well, that's great. I think this has been a pretty stimulating discussion. I wanted to ask each of you if you had any uh, parting words. My biggest parting word is going to be to our members who have done an incredible job throughout this pandemic. I think infectious disease doctors are the real heroes in this, in this epidemic. They have been not only seeing patients, but they've been writing guidelines, they've been writing protocols, they've been working with their infection control you know, hospitals, they've been working with the community, they've been doing all sorts of different things. So kudos to our infectious disease workforce, but also my recognition. And again, IDSA is here for you and we will continue to serve you and to do what we can to support you in doing your work. And also we've discovered through the COVID collaborative that Americans across all sorts of backgrounds and divisions and areas of expertise are desperate for platforms for shared work. And this is a big country uh, bursting with talent and we have to do more to tap the entrepreneurial spirit, creativity and expertise of Americans. And I know uh, uh, in COVID response, we'll continue to do that as uh, our founders uh, of the country said, we cannot ensure success, but we can deserve it. And uh, let's work toward that. Totally agree. Thanks very much, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too.